will sit as a refiner and purify of the silver, and he will purify the sons of the Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offering in the righteousness to the Lord. Just uh, that last song just reminded me how God just refines us to be like his son Jesus every single day. Um, if you are brand new to us, we want to welcome you to our church. You're more than welcome to uh, take your phone, and there's a QR code on the back of the pew. So just take a picture of that, and that will bring you to our Connect card. If you're online and joining us, we just want to welcome you to our church. And in person, we have a gift for you if you are new. So please connect with one of the pastors or ushers, and we'll make sure you get that gift. Just a few quick announcements uh, in regards to our church family. We're having a baptism, which is really exciting, at the end of May. Uh, if you're interested in that, uh, please connect with Pastor Mark Barrett. Um, also, we are having a seniors tea, and that's on May 11th at 2 o'clock p.m. If you're interested in um, helping out, we would love for you to help. You can connect with Benita Strong. Her email is office at northgatebaptist.ca. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dismiss the kids. Thanks, Carol. All right. Um, Lord, God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, Lord. God, we're so grateful, God, that uh, your spirit is moving, and your Holy Spirit lives within inside us, and continually refining us to be like your son, Jesus, God. And Lord, I pray for Pastor Mark as he preaches your word to us, God. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak through him, God. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, kids, let's go to the fellowship hall and do Sunday school. Well, good morning. I'm not sure if I'm on. Oh, there I am. I'm coming. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I uh, hope you're excited to look at the Word of God this morning. You turn with me to the book of 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And as you're doing that, uh, I'm going to do this. Let's see if it works. The Lord is risen. Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah. So it's like, can you do that when it's not Easter? Well, yes, actually you can because... The truth is, Jesus is still alive. He's still risen, and he's still living among us today. Uh, in fact, you know, just as we talked about last week, the, the resurrection, the Lord is risen, how we can know Jesus in our lives right now, have eternal life. Uh, as we come back to our series looking at the book of First John uh, this morning, we see our passage, First John 4, verses 13 to 24. Uh, John's pro- really proclaiming that same message. He's telling us Jesus is alive, uh, and we can know him. We can abide in him and have his life in us uh, even today. Because um, this is what this message is about. It's about abiding in Christ. Um, and I can tell you, I think, you know, just looking at this passage this week, I think John's, what he's writing here may be some of the most beautiful, you know, one of the most beautiful passages in the scripture the Bible has talking just about the assurance of our salvation as we abide in Christ and his love for us. Uh, so let's read our passage if you want to follow along with me in First John chapter 4. Verses 13 to 21 is what we'll be looking at. John writes this. He says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father God, um, yeah, as we come to this truth again this morning, as we open up your word, um, Lord, I just pray that you would um, just give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see and the hearts to receive uh, what you would have, what you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit this morning. Um, Lord, this is an important passage for many people who might be here or listening, uh, just about the assurance that we have in our relationship with you and how, how we need to abide in Christ, to dwell with you, to live with you, to just have you as part of our lives as we make our way through this world and, and into eternity. Um, so Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, pray that you would use me, uh, Lord, just to speak this truth, but Lord, may I decrease and you increase as, uh, yeah, as, 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 as we, this truth is proclaimed. So be with us in a very special way, Lord Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin just sort of with a, a scenario uh, for you to sort of think about. Uh, just imagine that tomorrow morning you're in your bed, you know, sort of just kind of waking up. But then suddenly you hear the sound of police officers breaking into your home. And they storm into your bedroom and you are arrested and you're hauled off to a prison awaiting trial. And the charge that they bring against you is that you're a Christian. And again, in many places in the world, that is a very real possibility for many believers. That's why we should continue to pray for the persecuted church. But now imagine that it's you. And here's the question I want to ask you. That if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to actually convict you? I mean, would they be able to call your neighbors and, and your co-workers and would they say, oh yeah, that guy, he's, he's totally a believer? Or would, would it kind of come as news to them? It's like, what? Really? That guy? Uh... What would people say? You know, what are the things in your life that they would look at to try to prove this charge? Well, you know, what, what, what would be the proof that you truly believe? Well, in a very strange way, that's actually what John is talking about to us here in this passage this morning. So he says, he begins it with verse, uh, 1 John 4, verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and him in us. That's John's point. John's telling us here, there are things in our life that let us know 
that we're believers. There, there are things that let us know we are abiding in Christ. And there are some things that are going to be seen in the life of every genuine believer that are evidence of faith. And he wants us to be aware of this. Uh, because I know, I know that there are always some people, even people in church, who actually wrestle with this very idea quite a bit in their lives. They, they worry that they're not saved. You know, maybe, maybe they struggle with some kind of addiction. And they think, you know what, that means, you know, because I can't get over this thing, that means, you know, I must be doing something wrong. Maybe they have issues with anger or some other emotion. They think, you know what, that, that makes me unqualified. I don't think I'm going to make it in. Maybe they're just in one of those seasons in their life where, you know, we can all go through, where they just sort of feeling mediocre about their faith. You know, where lately it just feels like they're kind of phoning it in and think, well, is, is this it? Am I saved? Or like, you know, maybe like some others, you know, some people just get so down on themselves and such have low self-esteem that they just, they can't really even see what about their life is worth saving from God's perspective. But if you're doubting in any of those ways or in any of those things this morning, even a little bit, here's some good news. Because John, he wants you to be sure of your place in the kingdom. He wants you to be able to be certain about your faith. He wants you to actually take comfort in the knowledge that you are secure in Christ. And you know, I think again, comfort is the optimum word there. Because again, there are always some people who are going to take, you know, the words of John in a, in a passage like this, and they're going to try to turn this into a checklist by which we can judge others, you know, uh, about, you know, who's in and who's out of the kingdom. If you have this, you don't have that, you know, and they use these things to look at others and question their faith and even create, it creates even more doubt in their minds. That is not John's purpose when he writes these words. John's purpose in writing these words is not to create doubt or, or stir up questions about whether or not we're saved. It's instead, his purpose is to offer us peace and assurance when it comes to the issue of our own relationship with Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, let's look at what John has to say when he talks about what is the evidence of our salvation. And John gives us a pretty straightforward list. I'd actually like to thank John for giving me a very straight sermon outline this week. He hasn't done that to me lately. Uh, but these are some sure signs that we are abiding in Christ. And this morning, I'm going to give you six of them that come from this passage. And we begin at the beginning. We see that the first, John tells us that we have been given the Holy Spirit. First uh, John 4, verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in Christ. We abide, he, we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his Spirit. You see, as a Christian, the moment you believe you receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's not just speculation. couple verses. Romans 8, verse 9. Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he says, did not belong to him. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Again, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of faith, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And in John 7, Jesus says, 
He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The person who believes receives the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we are Spirit-filled believers. You see, Spirit-filled living is not, it's not an optional upgrade for the Christian life. It's not like, you know, asking for power windows when you're buying a new car. Spirit-filled Christianity is the basic model. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are a Christian. If you don't, you aren't. It's, it's that black and white. The only kind of Christian is a Spirit-filled Christian. So genuine believers have the Holy Spirit. But you know what? That may not really answer the question many of you be, may be asking, but which is, you know, how then do I actually know that I have the Holy Spirit? Um, because what does that look like in a person's life in a practical way? Is it just a subjective feeling? You know, like, because, you know, it can be one of those things that's hard to nail down if you don't know what to look for. Is it simply a case of, I feel like I have the Holy Spirit, so I have, you know, well... John is actually going to answer that question for us in the rest of the passage. Everything else that John goes on to say in this passage, it's not subjective, but tangible evidence that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. But for the sake of clarity, I also want to read the words to you of the old preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who expounds on the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he says, there are certain tests that we can apply to ourselves in order that we may know whether we have received the Holy Spirit of God. Now listen to this, as if any of these sound familiar to you. As, as he goes on to write, he says, there's a sense of sin. A sense of unworthiness before God. A realization of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. There's an increasing longing to be more like him. An awareness of a conflict between the flesh and the spirit in this internal warfare. There's the fruit of the spirit. And the possession, he says, perhaps of a certain of the special gifts which the Holy Spirit in his sovereignty dispenses to certain people at certain times. You see, any and all of those things in our lives point to the fact that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. And to put it another way, none of those things are going to be present in your life in any way unless you have the Holy Spirit. We have them because we have been given the Holy Spirit as evidence of our faith. Which then leads to the second piece of evidence that John is going to point us to in our passage. Which is that we also give testimony to our faith. He says in verse 14, he says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Um, and the language that John uses there really reminded me and I think reflects the opening verses of this letter. Where John's own testimony was this. Uh, back, go back to John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Where he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. John's saying, I got to know Jesus personally. I got to see him, I got to touch him, I got to hear him, and now because of that, I am sharing news about him with you so that you too can have eternal life. And now he tells us the same is true for us as believers. If you know Jesus, if you have tasted of his grace, if you have experienced his love, if you have embraced his forgiveness that he offers, if you live in the hope of the resurrection, 
If Jesus is your Savior, whom God sent to be the Savior of the world, if he's your Savior, and if he started transforming your life, then you know what? You're going to want to share that truth with other people so that they can experience it too. Because I want you to hear this. Because as Christians, it is impossible for us to be indifferent to a world dying in sin. Evangelist George George Whitfield once said, Lord, give me souls or take my soul. John Knox said, give me Scotland or I'll die. David Livingston, the great missionary in Africa, said, I must open a way or perish. Henry Martin on the shores of India said, here, let me burn for God. As he began his missionary journey. Evidence of our faith comes when we desire to share Jesus with others. And yet I know that, you know, for many of us, honestly, we probably struggle with that whole idea of evangelism. It can be terrifying. It can be intimidating. And sometimes, as even as you look at my own life, as you look at yours, we probably have remained silent when we should have spoken. But you know what? Whether or not you've personally shared the gospel with another person or not, if we are genuine believers, we're always going to have that pull on our hearts to want other people to know him. There will be that concern about the salvation for our friends and for our family. There's always going to be that passion where we think to ourselves just how much I would like that person in my life to know Jesus the way I know Jesus. Because to be in Christ is just it's to have that desire to share him with others. And that leads us to John's next point. That as true believers, we confess and we establish our lives on the truth of God. As he says in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You know, this confession that John gives us is kind of basic Christianity 101. It's a condensed truth about Jesus and who he is. And that truth is at the core of what we believe. And I mean, John could have said lots, I mean, our truth, there's lots of truth that he could have probably said, but John centers on that particular confession because remember, there were false teachers you know, in the churches that he was overseeing that were directly attacking that very truth about who Jesus was. So John's really sort of saying here, you've got to hold fast, confess and hold fast to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Because truth matters. Because if you hold to the truth and genuinely confess it with your life, he tells us God abides in you and you in God. And that's why Peter says in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Peter says, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. That's why Paul tells the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Brothers, stand firm and hold on to the teachings we passed on to you. That's why Titus was asked in Titus 1.9, Hold firmly to the trustworthy message you have been taught. So why Timothy was told in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, what you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And it's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, I would remind you, of, remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to, the pre, to that which I preached to you. You know, one of the distinctions of the Christian life is it's our dedication to the truth, especially the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
We confess that truth. And it's upon that truth that we build our lives and as we live as believers. We confess God's truth and we allow that truth to define us, not the lies of the world. So as Christians, we turn to the word of God and we confess truth. And that leads us to verse 16, uh, where John says, so we have come to know and to believe in the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And you know, reading that verse, I actually really kind of fell in love with that verse. I just, because, I don't know if I've ever really kind of wrapped my head around that, but it's just this idea in my life of believing in the love that God has for me as his child. Believing in the love that God has for us as his people. John tells us that's, that's another mark of being a Christian. Christians know and rest in the knowledge that God loves them. And they abide in that. They live in that. You know, that love is just, it's always before us as believers. That's why we hold up that sign at football games, John three sixteen. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I want you to hear that clearly. We serve a God who loves us. A God who forgives us. A God who is reaching out to us. A God who calls us to himself. Invites us to be with him. Asks all people to come to him because he loves them. Even while we were sinners, Jesus came to die on the cross so that God could forgive us because he loves us. We just went through Good Friday and that reminder that the cross is the ultimate expression of God's love for us as his people. As Christians, we need to learn to abide and believe in that love, to trust in it, just to rest in the love that God has for us. Just allow that love to shape our lives, shape our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of others, and just believe in it. It's a powerful thing. There's a great story that I found out I love about a Christian speaker that illustrates this so well. This guy says, one day I was sitting on a plane next to a businessman. And he says, on the screensaver of his computer was the picture of a, a tow-headed little boy taking what looked like his very first shaky step. I ask, is that your son? Big mistake. Yes, that was the man's son, his only child. Let's just say for his name was Adam. The picture on the computer was taken three months earlier when Adam was 11 months old. The man told me about his son's first step and his first words with a sense of wonder as if Adam had invented locomotion and speech. There was a more recent picture of Adam on the man's palm pilot. The man showed it to me. The same picture could be viewed more clearly on his computer. He showed me that one too. He had a whole string of pictures of Adam doing things that pretty much all children do and he displayed them one at a time with commentary. I and my seatmates got a graduate course in Adamology. The man said, I can't wait to get home to him. In the meantime, I could look at these pictures a hundred times a day. They never get old to me even though they were getting pretty old to all the people in the cabin sitting next to him. 
Why was the man so preoccupied with Adam? Was it because the boy's achievements were so impressive? No, millions of children learn to do the same things every day. My own children, I wanted to tell them, had done the same things at an earlier age with superior skill. (laughs) No, the man was preoccupied with Adam because he looked at him through the eyes of a father. Everything Adam did was cloaked with wonder. It didn't matter that other children do them as well. He loved them as a dad. And I said, you obviously miss your son. How long ago did you leave home? And he said, yesterday. <laughs> because one day away from his son was too many. He didn't simply want to love his son from a distance. He wanted to be with him. Then the man writes, and then it hit me. I'm the child on God's screensaver. And so are you. And the tiniest details of our life never grow old to him. God is filled with wonder at our faltering steps and our stammering words, not because we do them better than anyone else, but because he views them through the eyes of a loving father. God shows our pictures to the angels until even the angels are tired of looking at them. And the story of the Bible is first of all God's story. It's the story of a father rushing through the clouds to be at home with you. Because one day apart is too many. So I hope you never look in a mirror again without remembering that you are the most precious thing in all the earth. In the sight of God. When you look in a mirror, see a person that matters to God. A person of immeasurable value in the sight of God. A person God personally created just the way you are. A person that God is crazy about. A person that God was willing to die for. That is the love of God for us. It is a love that we can believe in. A love that we can abide in. And it's a love that never fails. And you know, as an outworking of truly knowing that love, John goes on to say, beginning of verse 17, he says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You see, more, genuine, more evidence of genuine faith comes just from having confidence in the day of judgment and having hope for eternity because of Jesus. Um, you know, just actually the other day, Wednesday, we were looking for ideas for the sign and we were kind of looking things up. And Mark B. suggested one. He said, have the sign say, Jesus is coming back. Everybody try to look busy, <laughs> right? It's just like, uh, and it was, re- it was really cute, but it, it hides a deeper meaning and a somewhat sadder truth that there are people who kind of don't feel ready. That they're not doing what they feel like they should be doing when Jesus is coming back. There are people who live in fear of Jesus' return living their lives not quite feeling ready for the day of judgment. So instead of confidence, they experience fear, trepidation, because they're just, they they aren't sure. 
And they're worried that maybe they won't make the cut when it comes to eternity. And you know, please know that all men, all men will stand to give an account before God. And all men will be judged. And we're not only judged, we will be found guilty before the throne of God because we're sinners. But for the Christian, that judgment has already happened. And the penalty has already been paid in full upon the cross. Because God loves us. So there is now no punishment that awaits for those who are forgiven in Christ. Jesus took our sins so that we could be seen as righteous before God. So the judgment should hold no fear for us if we rest in that truth and rest in that love. Just as we read in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if salvation were up to us, we would have very good reason to fear. But if we genuinely believe in God's love for us and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the salvation that he offers, it should set our hearts at peace. Because freedom from fear really comes from learning to depend upon Christ instead of ourselves. And that's not just true for the day of judgment. This is a bonus truth, but it's true for all the things we worry about in our life. You know, someone once said, we, we, we have a lot of jigsaw Christians today. Every time they're faced with a problem, they go to pieces. But we live in that age. Philosophers have called this age we live in the, the age of anxiety. We worry about everything. But true peace comes when we learn to surrender and trust in God. My advice to you this morning, be so convinced of God's love for you that you can rest in his love and trust in all that his love has done for you upon the cross. That's the basis for our confidence of our salvation. And it should bring us freedom. Which leads to John's final point in our passage. As he says, beginning in verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now the final evidence for our faith in Christ comes as we love one another. Which is a topic that John has explored already in this letter more than once. Um, But loving others, it's it's more proof that our faith is real and the Holy Spirit is at work in our life. Because very clearly... In the scriptures, a loveless life indicates that God is not present because God is love. And I think it's important again to notice here that that John roots this love that we are to give in the love of God that we've already received. The source of this love is from God. We love because God first loved us. And now we can love others because the love of God in us is overflowing in our lives. We are so loved by God, we can't keep it to ourselves. And you know, this heart, this, this kind of love requires a heart change within us. You know, only with the help of the Holy Spirit can we overcome our flesh and our selfishness to embrace, you know, the sacrifice and the humility and the selflessness that, that loving others requires. But it's just, it's just more proof that God is at work in our lives. And that's really what John, I think, wants us to hear this morning. 
There are so many things in our lives that we can look at and see that will give us assurance that God is at work in our lives, that we are abiding in him. And then just quickly as we look at that list, um, I want to give you one quick application for each of those points uh, that I think will help put, us, put this into practice. Uh, these are things we can all do right now uh, that will help nurture what God is already doing in our lives uh, in all of these things. So the first one, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, um, you know, God, we've been given the Holy Spirit. Well, my advice comes from Ephesians 3.18, which says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, when John talks about our, you know, building our relationship with Jesus, uh, he, he uses, these, uses the idea of abiding. He loves that language, abide in Christ. But often that same idea, that same thought when it comes to the Holy Spirit is referred to filling. We're told to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And filling is, is in the present tense there. It's the idea of continually, over and over, being filled with the Holy Spirit every moment of your life. And to do that, I think we can, we can spend time in prayer. But it also, being filled with the Spirit also implies, I think, an active submission to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Being filled with the Spirit is, is to allow God to be greater and for us to be less in our own lives. Being filled with the Spirit, is, it's, it's giving God more control. It's yielding our lives more and more to Him and what the Holy Spirit wants to do and the work that He wants to do. So be filled with the Spirit. That's the first application. Next, when it comes to this idea of testifying and sharing our faith, um, we need to share our faith. Um, that's the application. And I know it's important to let people, you know, let your life and your character and your testimony to others, that, that they can see that as you live your life, you know, see your character and see the difference that Jesus has made in the way that you live. But we always have to take it one step further and make an active effort to actually share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people in our lives. We need to speak the gospel. We need to speak the words of life. We need to actually tell people about Jesus with our words. So my encouragement is when those moments come, take the opportunity to share Jesus with someone else. Third application. I talked about this idea of, you know, we, we establish our lives on the truth of God. Uh, simple application here, spend time in the Word of God. It's something we should be doing daily. Read the Word. Read the Bible. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Study it. Commit it to your heart. Uh, be someone who handles the Word of God well. Fourth application. Uh, when it comes to this idea of believing and abiding in God's love, uh, my encouragement here is to spend some time in praise and worship as you just remind yourself of God's love for you. Just let your heart sing as you celebrate that truth and, and let it glorify God. Worship God in your life. Then in the same way, the fifth application I talk about when we're talking about the confidence we have in God and the hope that we have in Him my advice is just be thankful. Uh, you know, take time to actually give thanks to God every day for what he has done. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that I am righteous before you. And let all of that thanksgiving that you're doing just point you to Jesus as it reminds you of all that he has done for you. You know, thank God every day for his love and his grace and his salvation that he has offered to us all. That's where our hope belongs. And then finally, when it comes to loving one another, the advice I'd give you is maybe a little bit unusual, but my advice here is actually put your spiritual gift into practice, serving other people. 
You know, God has given each and every one of us a gift that we can use to serve others and build up the church. And there are few better ways to show love to others than to practically meet a need in their life in a way that God has already sort of prepared you and shaped you to serve. And you know, those are for some very simple ways we can put this truth into practice. But again, most of this, most of this is on God and his goodness and his love for us. He's the one that wants to give us just this, this, this comfort and this assurance in our hearts today. And I hope you're encouraged this morning and blessed by knowing that you are God's child. You are his beloved. You are his, his own. And I hope that that assurance will offer you peace in knowing that you are secure in your relationship with Jesus as you continue to abide in him. And just as we close, I thought what better way to, then to end with some of the words of Fanny Crosby who wrote, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. She says, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior and happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Let's give thanks. Father God, um, thank you so much for the word that you've delivered to us today, for this assurance that you want us to have in our hearts as we abide in